everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles and I are talking to Ezekiel Lanza, who, like me, is an open source evangelist at Intel, but we'll get to that in a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about AI, conversational interfaces. But before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to check out our website at reality2cast.com. That's the number two. And sign up for our newsletter. Doc has written some really great stuff. We actually, before we started recording, just talked about uh, his post on on open wallets. And that's interesting. You might want to check that out. Also, before we get into it, I wanted to mention something else that I've been working on elsewhere. You may know that Doc, Doc and I, uh, Doc every week and me occasionally, can be found at Floss Weekly. That's t- on twit.tv slash floss weekly, I believe. Um, and I hope you're listening to that. But yet another podcast I hope you will add to your podcast player is a brand new one that I'm working on at Intel, and that is called Open at Intel. You can find it now in most of your podcast players. You can also find it at openatintel.podbean.com. You can probably find links to it now at open.intel.com as well. And we hope you'll read all about that because Ezekiel and I occasionally contribute there and we would we would love it if you read our stuff. So please listen to that. We're starting with some conversations about open source security and really good stuff from really good people. I am really biased, but I'm pretty happy with it. So on that note, thank you, Ezekiel, for joining us again. I will link to the episode where Ezekiel and Tony joined us previously, but we wanted to pick up some of those conversations that came up and maybe were maybe left some open questions. So yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming back. No, thank you for having me. Thank you. Because, you know, Ezekiel doesn't get enough of me in our meetings at work. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so how this came about, actually, Doc and I were talking off offline, off of this call, about the nature of search. Doc, why don't you tell us the, the initial problem that you faced in, in searching in the way that you used to versus today? So there, we have kind of a concurrent problem and solution that seem to be completely unrelated. And the problem is not well recognized or talked about, and the solution is talked about all the time. The solution, first of all, is, is AI. AI is moving very, very quickly right now. Um, but the problem is search. For those of us who have been publishing on the web for a very long time, search is deprecated. Uh, if 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 what you wrote is not that popular, I don't even know what the what the what the parameters are. But there are things that I wrote. Um, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago that are on the web. There are many links to them and they are not found by either Google or Bing and or by DuckDuckGo and others that rely on Google and or Bing. So that's one thing. And it seems to me that's a worsening problem. That is a sample of one on my part. But on the other hand, suddenly we're in a new era of AI in which we are like chat GPT uh, is suddenly uh, very popular. Um, I went on it several times today. Couldn't get on. It's too busy. It's not letting me go on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an enormous demand for it. It has ramped up in popularity faster than almost anything else out there. And it's just one thing. There are many different approaches to this. And Microsoft and Google have made news by on Microsoft's part saying they're going to base Bing on either ChatGPT or something like it or leveraging their investment in OpenAI, and uh, which is a, a, a company, and their new user interfaces ask me a question, and what you get are 
basically the same search results, it looks like to me, but maybe not. But in any case, it's a whole new experience that they're trying to provide. The best one that I found actually is not ChatGPT, but for just answering a question is perplexity.ai. And I highly recommend checking them out. It is incredibly useful, really useful. In the middle of the night last night, uh, my wife found um, two sources of custom cushions for a bench that she could not find at all on either Bing or Google. And it came up with two, two providers within seconds and it provides sources. Now, this is really in some ways a better search. Perplexity.ai right now for me is a better search. But the curiosity that I have, Ezekiel, is what's going on here? <laughs> I, you may not be able to speak to the search issue, but certainly to the AI side, because it's a moving, it's not even a moving target. It's a juggernaut of stuff. And there's lots of yak about it, but not a whole lot of understanding, I sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's AI is changing everything, as you said, but uh, I think that the main problem that we can face today with the with the browser, with the search, with the search engines, is that you need to figure out how to write uh, your your phrase that you are looking for, and they know when Google or Bing, when you need to find for something, they have it indexed, or they have their own algorithms to index web pages or whatever, and they decide what to to show you, right? Um, but now with this ChatGPT or even with GPT, you have these algorithms that they already know what is everything in, in the internet. So if you ask for those models, they know who you are uh, or what is something that you are looking for. When you mix that thing with internet access, you can really empower a search engine, right? So uh, I totally agree that it's changing it's completely a new way to look for for something. Um, this conversation and stuff, it's now instead of writing a phrase, you can start talking to the browser, right? So when you are like trying natural to... natural human language, you mean? Like, yes, like a natural human. So you went, now when you find something in Google and you don't like what you see, you try other phrases, you try something different. But if you have a conversational site, you can say, okay, could you please give me something similar? And you have an algorithm and you have a model that can understand what you are saying and they can look for other things different compared with how Google or Bing can can look for it. Uh, I think that it's a really good combination about AI-empowered engines and web search because the models are statics. I mean, the models are able to understand what you are saying, some information, but when you give that information and you give the freedom, okay, go and Google my information or try to look for other stuff uh, because perplexity and also you.com is another site that they are using similar than ChatGPT when you can talk to the web search. It's it's amazing for me because they are even using Google, but they are using Google, they are using Bing, they are using all the websites. They are searching by their own in Wikipedia and other sites, right? So I think that it's amazing. So the okay, so these AI searches they have the benefit of the existing search out, search algorithms like Google and Bing, but they also know the entire internet. So that's the difference between the data model and existing search capability. 
Because the, the thing that I'm really curious about is the why of the fact that Doc is able to find what he's looking for using one and not the other. And I'm also thinking about accuracy here. Like in Doc's case, in his examples or, or Doc's wife's examples, mm-hmm. she found something that she was flat unable to find on the search engines, which is, you know, that's significant. But assuming you get an answer of some sort on either you.com, perplexity AI, or Google or Bing, assuming you get an answer in the first place, um, you know, how does accuracy compare? Because I know things like chat GPT, accuracy can be an issue. You can ask it to write you an answer, a story, a report or whatever on something that is completely nonsensical and has zero basis in, in, in reality or fact. So I wonder if that how that translates to an AI based conversational search. If I say, hey, perplexity AI, who, who is Doc Searles? And it gives me this really eloquent and, and seemingly helpful answer well doc searles you know got his phd in 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 um, (laughs) physics at mit and he is currently a practicing physician and congressman representing the state of iowa like i mean that might be really flunked out of sixth grade yeah yeah Yeah, but it's not going to be true it could be (laughs) very well written um i I just you know i wonder how those things interact there yeah but it's the way to learn i mean uh google for instance knows that the when you do a web search in Google and they know or the accuracy for them is when you hit in the first or in the second link that they recommend you. So this is how they know that they did good when they re- re- recommend something for, for you. And with this other, with perplexity and so on, they need to have, absolutely, I, I can't be completely sure that they have this, another model that it can measure this accuracy so if you keep questioning or if you keep doing the same question uh i mean who who is doc and he said something and you ask again okay but tell me who is doc and you do it and you do it and the model could understand that maybe it's it's doing wrong uh, what you are doing and it is this there is a kind of algorithms that it's a way of uh, ai that is called reinforcement learning when you try to train an algorithm instead of training with with classification data, with data that you already have or the model already seen, this kind of models they learn uh, with rewards. For instance, when you do something and you say that the model that is what right, you give a reward to the model. So the model understand that this was a really good guess. For instance, right? Uh, so. ChatGPT, and when you are working with conversational AI stuff, you used to use a lot of reinforcement learning because you need to, to double check what we are doing in real time. It's right or it's wrong. And if you need to reaccommodate or if you need to retrain the initial model or whatever. But most of the time it's related with, with reinforcement learning uh, when they are sensing in real time uh, what is the accuracy of the of the questions, of right. the answers, and so on. So it's which comes back to crowdsourcing, which is something we, as users of the internet, already understand at a basic level. For, you know, for things like Wikipedia, for example, if somebody puts something inaccurate on Wikipedia, you have the whole internet to scrutinize it and change it and correct it. But you know, but I guess you know, it goes back to something that we say a lot here, or Doc does, and which is it's early. So if those of us who know that it's giving false answers, we, we need to corrected i suppose but um but yeah it, it is i guess it's a concern anyway doc you look like you have a 
Oh, I actually, it, and it just, yeah, well, yeah, it, it, it is, it has to be early. The conversation I was involved with a few, uh, an hour or two ago at Indiana University, which was, it doesn't even matter what that was about, but what the things that came out of the meeting was that we are at the mainframe age of AI. Um, in, for the first several decades of the, of the computing industry or, or computing period, um, there were only mainframes and th- smaller mini computers that were like mainframes, but there was no personal computing. Personal computing was an oxymoron. And even after uh, Radio Shack and uh, Apple and um, Osborne and a bunch of other companies made PCs, personal computers, they were considered hobby toys, kind of like ham radio to the to real radio. You know, it's like nobody's serious to be doing it that way. But then with the IBM PC and the Macintosh, suddenly computing did become personal. We don't, and this is a bit of a subject change, but I think it's important. We don't have personal AI yet, and it would be really nice to have that. I would love to be able to put all my property in an AI. I'd like to be able to put, you know, 20 years of taxes. I would be able, like to be able to put my own writings in there, all my photography, many, my, you know, all my insurance policies, all these things that, you know, the record of what cars I've owned, all of these are interesting things to me. Um, my car, my calendar, my correspondence, and I should be able to do AI on that. I would love to be able to do that. Uh, that's hardly even being thought about now. And, and I, I, I bring that up because we are in the mainframe age. We do need these things to be worked out on big machines. I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with having services that are trying to do this for me, but I do have a problem with not knowing exactly how they work and not having my own way of doing the same damn thing. I'm envious of, of, <laughs> have, of, you know, big companies are buying this stuff. Like how can we look at our data lakes and our, and our warehouses and stuff like that and make sense of them. And how can we make sense of our customers, which is one of the things that has been annoying us for a long time. Um, but I, so I'm, I'm bringing that up. This kind of an, a different topic, but I just asked a couple of questions of um, perplexity.ai about stuff that I know is arcane is on the web, but is not, I mean, you, you have to dig for it. It didn't find it. It made shit up. <laughs> I mean, that's what it did. It made up wrong information. You know, and so, I mean, in particular, I was looking for where was the transmitter of this radio station in 1938? I knew where it was. And it said, it's where it is now, which it is not. You know, that was a wrong answer. Um, but at least it gives you sources and the sources are wrong. <laughs> you know, so that's that's a positive thing. But we're such a long way from whatever this will be when we fully, I don't think we'll ever fully make it work, but it's sort of, you know, not to get back to search, but to use it as an example, um, I think we've regressed with search. Search is worse now. And I think it's partly because those companies care less about it. They care about something else. Well, yeah, it's just when ad revenue competes with usability. That's a- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Corey Doctorow calls this inshittification and that, that there's, <laughs> of course a, there's he does. a, you know, it, it starts out doing something that's really well and then they want to advertise and, and then they optimize for that. And what he calls self-preferencing, uh, Google's been doing that for a long time. Amazon's, he used Amazon as the example. Amazon is self-preferencing enormously. And it's not as good as it used to be in many ways. It's just, it's a, the experience of using it sucks. Um, so again, not to get us off on that same tangent. Yeah, I, I'm full That's something that you here, mentioned. Sorry. Well, I, this is relevant. And I, I have a feeling that Ezekiel knows more about this than me, but I'm going to 
So I'm going to throw this out. Um, so in, in terms of personal AI, the idea of having like a personal database that is queryable using this sort of natural language um, to ask it, oh, you know, where did I keep my X, Y, and Z? You know, where, where can I find the history of X, this financial data so that I can put it on my tax return or, or for your descendants? Uh, tell me, tell me about the time that my great grandfather wrote an article mm. in this thing called Linux Journal. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it reminded me there was a scientist, um, and I cannot remember the name, save my life, who created a robotic bust of his wife, and it was AI powered. And the idea was it was trained on on his wife's knowledge and identity. And and this is years ago. And it occurred to me that, you know, as you're talking, Doc, I'm imagining a future where we all have little robotic busts of ourselves that people in the future, those of us who who are worth asking questions of, I guess, might be able to uh, query our knowledge someday in the future. And I, I, I mean, I think that's there. I can't remember the name of the scientist. I bet Ezekiel might at least know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, anyway. I believe that it's something that we can definitely do. But if the thing is that what we have in our hands or, or this ChatGPT stuff and all the things that we can see there, uh, they answer for, for things that are Googleable. I mean, if I would like to get some information or if, if I ask for some private information or something that I know, or even I or a company or something that it's private, they would not be able to answer for that. So, but the good thing is that these models or ChatGPT, it's really powerful on conversational on understanding language or whatever so what will happen for sure in the future is you can you can probably fine-tune this ChatGPT with your stuff with your data and but of course if you need to do that it's something similar than you probably seen in the past there are some algorithms that is based on the gpt is that if you like to train a model to write as someone. And if you have the data, you can train the model and the model will know how to speak as an ex an ex person. Uh, so you could do the same with your data. But the thing is that you need to feed the algorithm with, with your data. I mean, with your balances, with your taxes or whatever. So this model will be fine-tuned just for you. And this is the challenge that I see when those models, uh, because they can be very good with the Google stuff, with replacing engines, search, search engines, and that thing, they could replace that in the future. But when you would like to use for other stuff, for merchandising, for companies, or in another particular environment, uh, you would need to easily retrain those algorithms to be adaptable. Um, and I believe that it will be in the next years or months. Um, but because as you see now, for instance, we have some uh, companies that they are offering you to create your resume, uh, to create your LinkedIn posts or what or whatever. You just need to say, okay, this is what I would like to, to, to say, or this is my topic. So you are in a way trying to fine-tune the answer, he, he, he giving a hint or giving something that the model can say, okay, this is the path, so we, we should go. Um, but, and something as you, as you said, Doc, is about the, the black box. 
you probably won't understand or we all we have no idea how it works underneath it's a it's a black boss blocks we, we can understand how it works but it will be very difficult if you would like to go in deep at least we we can understand okay the data that, that we have it comes from internet from all the sites and from the wikipedia databases and so on and i can pick that thing could use to my environment this is a question for the future but i believe that it will be soon available for sure i posted a link for y'all to see and i'll I'll link to it in the in the show notes, but it's the the scientist or the the actually is apparently the f- founder of XM satellite radio, which I didn't realize uh, is uh, was the person I'm talking about who created Martine Rothblatt who created this robot version of her yeah. wife. And it, I mean, if you've seen pictures of it, of it, it's kind of terrifying, but it's also the the the, the science and the the archivalness of it is fascinating. And re- relevant to our conversation, certainly. I, I can see the appeal, I, I guess, where I'm going with it. I can see the appeal of having this archive of myself. Well, that's arrogant, isn't it? Anyway, my this archive, I wish, how about I'll put it this you way. I wish it. I had an archive of my parents, of my grandparents. Yeah. Of, I don't so much care about the one about myself, but I wish I had something like this for people who I am related to who are no longer with me. Or it could be even picture, I don't know, images or whatever. But you need to have it. Yeah, yeah it's the, the grandfather I never met. I only know one thing he said in his entire life. I didn't know. I assume it was in a Swedish accent because his Swedish was his first language. But I don't know much else about him. My, his wife, my grandmother, she died when I was a few months old. I know a few stories about her. He had a very big life. I mean, she had five kids and lived in the prairies in North Dakota, had you know, probably a lot of stories there that are, aren't there. I There's a little bit of a subject change, but maybe not. We were at an antique store a few days ago in Kentucky, and there was a tabletop with nothing but piles of old black and white photos, archival photos that came from people's photo albums that were just dumped there. Some, you turn it over and there were names. I actually took a picture of one and I looked it up and as somebody in... in and um, as a picture of him when he was 10 years old, he lived in Wyoming. Um, I didn't follow that any farther, but it, it occurs to me, this would be a good use of, of facial recognition, right? Or if somebody could identify these faces as these people, th- the photos could be routed in some way or discovered in some way by relatives or other people who cared about them. Uh, and I don't think at this stage with all of these, that there's a violation of privacy necessarily involved, uh, um, unless you think everybody who's already dead, and unless they said otherwise is entitled to privacy. But, um, that, but there's- uh, so- That actually, uh, I feel like I need to drop a link in here to our a yeah, previous episode. Go for it. Remember the- <laughs> Which one? Oh, there, were, there was a one where we, we discussed exactly that. It was the, the unpacking of a photographic archive and, and arguing, oh, right. do, do people have privacy after they're dead? Mm. I think that's also the one where I mentioned one of my favorite quotes from a, an art professor I had once, which was that all photography is about death. They said, no matter what it is, yeah, photography no, the, is about death because it is capturing this moment and eventually whatever's in it will be dead. Same that all- professor has, has also since died. Um, anyway. Well, this is a, uh, so it occurs to me like, like Okay, so I, I would love for my archival work to persist. Um, I've been worried. I have 77,000 photos on Flickr that have almost disappeared on the web. 
two or three times, but um, smug mug save them. Will they save them forever? I don't know. I hope the Internet Archive will. Will the Internet Archive last forever? I don't know. And there's in the something form of inherent- training all the AI data models, I yeah, suppose well, yeah, it already absolutely. it may. I, I, and I was told that whatever that awful company was that uh, that, that sells facial recognition to police departments did oh, train wow. on a lot of my photos, yeah. actually, of, of identified people. And but I, you know, we're we're a long way from learning whatever the manners ought to be in the digital world. We don't know yet, and and I think we, you know, we we proceed by a process of discovery and. A lot of the discovery is around things that are not comfortable retrospectively, I think, you know, like maybe we shouldn't have done that. But I don't have a big problem with some of that, at least a lot of that with with AI research at this point, because we've got to know we've got to we got to work out a lot of different things. But the black boxedness of it, you're right, Ezekiel, is that we, we can't know what's going on inside of there by design. Almost. It's too it's too complex. You almost need another AI to tell you and it might lie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I know. <laughs> no, this is why you have uh, things are, are like responsible AI, but I mean, you use responsible AI or you put, you use other algorithms to try to, to fix this boundary or to limit those boundaries, uh, but you use it if you want to use it. This is the, mm-hmm. this is the challenge, right? Um, can you tell us, uh, when you say responsible AI, could you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's just a way to define the boundaries of an algorithm. Let, let's suppose that you have uh, these GPT algorithms. They were trained with all the internet data, right? In this internet data, you have racist comments, you have gender, I mean, a lot of things related with, racist, with racism. And the algorithm, it learns right? So if you probably ask for something, the answer could be probably uh, not so good for for what we would like to show, for instance. Um, so this is why you need to put a, an, an extra layer to verify and to remove those bias. Because if you train a model for a leader, I suppose, an example, that the only data that you have is a, a particular town in a country, that you have one kind of people. So the only data that the algorithm will know is this this people or this amount of people. So when you ask for something, he will answer based or biased in this amount of people. So if you like to use, if you like to, to use this model in another branch of people or whatever, you need to say, okay, this is not the answer for everybody. You need to put some some boundaries to say, try to avoid, I mean, instead of talking about the debt, I mean, I don't want an, I don't want this algorithm to talk about the debt. So this, this is one limit. Uh, it's basic policies, rules, and all the things that you say to the algorithm to try to be more fair. Same applies when you are working in, in a bank and you are applying for a loan, for instance, and the algorithm could probably take a decision based on the on the zone, on the geographical zone. And you as a bank, you can say, okay, it doesn't matter if a person lives in a region. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just one more feature. I mean, it's, it's not something so important. Um, if you need to, to say, okay, 
let's try to extract this feature. Uh, the responsible AI is playing there uh, another another role. But it's how it works. It it's try to make AI fair uh, instead of make it biased, basically. Okay, so the responsible and responsible is really just a, a fairness and uh, an issue of representation in the data, basically. Yes, because the data that, that you have, it's it's unbalanced. Normally, uh, right. you, you don't have the classes, all the classes equally distributed. Right, so you, yeah. You need to make yeah. it fair. For example, I, I think a good example of that is the is camera tech. Um you know, uh, let's, what do you call it? Blink detection in cameras. That, that's, that's been a controversial subject for a long time, because if you, if your face is not the type of face that where <laughs> that the AI was trained on, it can't figure out, you know, your face. It can't figure out if your eyes are open or closed. It can't figure out, you know, the shape of your face and all these various things. Yeah. And it's a I very important topic, but it's yeah. something that if you are developing something, this is a value that you as a person can have it. Um, but if you ask to the model, the model will give you an answer that is probably not the right answer. Right. right. You're imposing your own human bias on a machine and then the machine just spits it right back out you out at you and you know exposing your bias very plainly to your face. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it it's interesting that it, it um I mean I think all animals do this, but humans do it. Um we're profiling at all times. Exactly. Yeah. We're always yeah. We, we have to, we have to. And an interesting thing about humans is that we all look different and sound different on purpose. This is part of the design. And, um, but we do fall into classes, you know, there's tall, short, wide, you know, narrow. Um, um, I, I know from looking at the facial recognition is really look at the geometry of the face. There are the angles of, you know, there are 15 dots or 20 dots or something like that correspond to different facial features, which is how regardless of lighting, often you're like my iPhone, I'm kind of amazed that it can see my face in near, near darkness, but it does know what the geometry of my face is. And even though I'm wearing glasses and I have a beard, it's still, if I shave this off or take these off, it won't make any difference. That's pretty cool, but it's profiling me. It's, it's got my profile, whatever that is. And, um, but we're, but we're judging everybody all the time. And so we will, we'll, we need to expect machines to do these things for us as well. So what do we do with that? I mean, it, it's you, you want it to not be biased about certain things, or at least treat certain variables equally, um, or without prejudice. But prejudice is, in fact, how we operate, you know, to a large degree. Yeah. And you know, and, it's and that's only heightened, highlighted, I suppose, concentrated and highlighted by yeah, the, and the data models we've created. <laughs> was, one of my favorite lines is from a, a guy named Ed McCabe. He was a <clears throat> still is around, I think, a famous copywriter back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and he said in an interview, he said, I have no use for rules. They only rule out the possibility of brilliant exceptions. And that's what makes us human too, is the brilliant exceptions. And, you know, one of the great teachers, a guy named John Taylor Gatto, said everybody has an inherent genius of some kind or another, whether it's realized or not. And just like we all have a different face. And that's... I, I don't think that's that, that could be replicated. I think there's that is what where our soul resides. I, I was thinking about when we were talking about archive. My, I, I'd love it if my archives were, were saved. But what people value about me, um, one of them is 
that I'm funny a lot of the time and I make jokes. And how do how do you how do you make that up? I mean, I, I can't emulate that. That's that requires irony, right? <laughs> and contradictory meanings that evoke some other sense. And um, that's that can't be replicated. You know, I don't think you get that. You bring no. that back from the dead. Well, so, this is what is important from the neuro neurophysics. I think that is the the mother. It's uh, they study how we learn with our neurons and so on. And this is what they once they understand our brain, at least with that part, they can rep, replicate to an algorithm. Uh, this is why deep learning works and so on. They learn in the same way as the brain learns, right? But as you said, when when with ironies or love or with sentiments, I mean, we don't even know how it works in our brains. So how can we empower machines or how can we create algorithms to emulate that if we don't even know how it works in our brain? So I see I see that AI uh, is it's it's like a kid now uh, of two years or three years kid, or probably five years kid that he can't speak. Now he can't speak. Um, but it's pretty innocent uh, because they tell the truth. As you said, is, is as we said, mm. when, when you ask for a kid something. Oh, it is like a kid, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, they will call you fat to your face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they need to learn this extra layer <laughs> when they avoid same thing. Yeah. I remember uh, one of my sons in a store. Um, uh, there, there was a, a little person in the store, and he yells out. He's four years old. Hey, Papa! There's a little person. Look, there's a little person over there. A little person. And of course, the person came up and said, "Yeah, you're right. I am a little person." And he was so blown away by that. He'd not seen like an adult head on a child-sized body before that would talk to him. You know, in a similar way, he said to my aunt. Um, she, he asked her how old she was, and she said to him, same age as your grandma. And he said, but you look older. <laughs> and, and I was terribly embarrassed by that, and I told him, don't say that. But he's like five years old. You know, they're they're honest. I, I suppose in a certain way, AIs are like children too, I suppose, because they're, they're still naive about a lot of things. But Exactly. I mean, one of the reasons I, I sort of bring up these these areas where, like with humor and sentiment, that can't be replicated, um, much less understood at the human side, um, that we, we kind of need to know almost at the start what can't be done. What is it that can't be done? What is it that will not be like us or will not be modeled on us and will be something else? And at the same time is, you know, how do all these things change us? Uh, it's interesting looking at movies, um, a movie that's four years old are using a completely different phone, right? You know, <laughs> or 10 years, uh, there's a flip phone or something like that from 15 years ago. Uh, uh, you know, we're, it's everything, things are moving along pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but I think that the analogy with, with, even with kids or how the brain works in, at the beginning of our existence uh, is that if you realize the first thing that we we learn is to identify objects. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, this is a table. This is something that, and this is what you do with computer vision. At the beginning, I mean, you start recognizing stuff, 
uh, when you getting older, I mean, in the in the next year, you probably will start to speak, we start to read. Um, and I believe that we are at that stage. Uh, now we are we are mm -hmm. approaching to, to a stage, uh, the algorithms, I mean, and it's pretty fast, as, as you said, three years or four years ago, uh, having a conversation with a chatbot, it wasn't so good. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um but now it can be can be pretty decent decent right i mean you you could have a conversation uh you probably will realize that there is a, a machine but you can have a conversation at least uh, you can resolve your customer service issues with amazon for example pretty well with using a chatbot it's surprising surprisingly and Speaking of this, this sort of usability question, going back to the original topic, which was search, AI powered search, I'm wondering, I think Doc and I had this conversation. If it wasn't with you, it was somebody about how there is sort of a, almost a generational difference or, you know, kind of depending on, let's say what year you went to college or high school or any of these things, like how you approach online search, because the older you are, the more likely you are to have incorporated a completely different way of, you know, even if, if it was computerized at the time, a, a completely different way of interacting with a search a card catalog and on, you know, any kind of library search or anything like that. Um, and then, or, you know, if you, if you were in, in college, you know, when, when Google was already well-established, you know, then it might be different the, the way that you approach these things. And, you know, I just wonder, is a conversational format more usable? Is it really? Or is it is it just sort of a weird, comforting illusion? Or can you get better data using other methods? These are things that I think about, and I wondered what y'all thought about that. If you ask me, I mean, uh, the previous experience that I have with chatbots, not today, of course, but the previous experience was, I mean, I didn't want to talk to a chatbot in the past. Uh, because the experience was pretty bad and it, it was pretty bad for years. Um, so you you now need to change uh, that conception that a chatbot can really help you uh, instead of being something really useless. Um, I don't know. I agree with you. I think that it depends. For some things, it could be really useful to have a conversational thing. Um but for other things, I don't know. I just prefer writing the search and or writing search, something. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it would depend. Uh, now, five years ago, I didn't talk to my Google Assistant. And now I talk to my Google Assistant uh, with with no shame. Um, <laughs> Do you tell so, it your secrets? Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's your confidant. <laughs> yes. But I think that if, if they... If, there is some new applications that are really useful using the conversational stuff or a conversational way. Uh, they can be probably a new way to to do searches. Or I mean, I believe that it could be a good one option for web searches. Uh, but I don't know if I would like to talk to a customer service and talk and maybe a chatbot, which is not so good or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that there is a lot of potential, but it would depend. We haven't polished the experience yet. Because we have a bias. I mean, at least I have yeah. a bias uh, because I didn't like it in the past. Um, mm. 
there's also the a, who knows yeah there's a kind of inconvenience introduced by uh, well illuminated by cognitive science which um i'm familiar with the linguistic side of that and linguistic cognitive scientists will tell you that we understand everything metaphorically so for example i just asked perplexity ai what is time and <laughs> it gave me a, a, a i can't find it now because i have too many of them open oh yeah a continued sequence of existence and events that occurs in an appropriately irreversible succession from the past to the present to the future and then it points me to time <laughs> time magazine <laughs> um but um if we look at how we understand time, we understand it as money. We save it, we waste it, we spend it, we put it aside, we invest it, um, we lose it. Um, it's we understand it in terms of money. We terms in terms of a, a thing, something we value. There's another thing we value. The irony of of metaphor is that it's always wrong. Time is not money. You know, life is not a journey, but we have birth is arrival and death is departure and choices are crossroads and careers are paths. Um, we can, it's almost impossible to talk about life without talking about travel. And we have a sense of traveling through time, which is money, <laughs> you know, it, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's possible that um, for an AI to be taught, what are the, what are the metaphorical framings that, that are used for this, concept or that concept probably it can i'm guessing it can but i'm not certain yet i'm not sure i'm not sure anybody's put the effort into making that work probably somebody has you know but there's sort of like second order characteristics that need to be pulled apart and explained before that happens but i don't know is that kind of thing work going on ezekiel do you think i think that ironies could be could be useful um but it's how we think now that AI can, can be implemented, like a conversation and stuff. So you don't you don't think that you are you don't think AI as a person, for instance, in some particular cases, mm -hmm. right? So you think that okay, I would like to find what time it is. Tell me what is time uh, in a way that I can understand. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there there are some research papers. Uh, research paper, papers are about everything, right? Um, but I know that there are some research papers about ironies, um, metaphors, and so on. So, but I think that the implementation or how we can use AI uh, in a real scenario, it's it's could be useful to detect ironies, or but I I don't think that is a main point for for any AI in a in a production environment, right? If you if you would like to put in your company to help you for something, uh, you try to think more as a tool, right? But I think mm -hmm. that it goes hand to hand with, a, I mean, goes to, together with our with the neural physics ad advances from our brains, because once we figure out how this stuff behaves in our brains, we can have some algorithms that can mimic that um can i really quickly um so it's it's relevant to the, to the line <laughs> of questioning here but um i kind of wanted to plug your your the thing that you wrote about fraud detection 
right? You brought use, using AI for fraud detection, which I think is interesting because, it, you know, relevant to what we're saying right now. Um, you know, we think of AI as creating fraudulent things, right? We think of AI, if you think of a lot of people today, if you think of AI, you think of deep fakes or, you know, creating inaccurate information or, you know, there's a, a skepticism, right? An inherent skepticism in this conversation. And at the same time, that, that reminded me of, of the thing that you wrote, because it, it's also quite useful for uncovering truth and, and detecting fraud and detecting inaccuracy and, and detecting patterns that would, would indicate something fraudulent or yeah. incorrect. And I, I, I'm thinking in terms of, can that same idea be applied to detecting irony, detecting, uh, detecting lies, detecting fakes, detecting I- inauthentic information? Well, what, what we can have now, uh, OpenAI uh, releases a chat GPT verification or something like that, where you can say or you can paste uh, a text and it says if it's created by, by an AI or if it's created oh, by yes, a human. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I don't know. I, I've tried it with some stuff that I wrote, I know that I wrote, uh, and it says that it's probably generated by AI. So, or yeah, I am converting but- in, a, in, a, in a robot or whatever. But um, yes, the fraud part, how to detect fraud, how it was r- written by AI or how it seems, how it seems to be fraudulent. It's, it's a huge topic for, for the next years, for sure, because most people will start using that. Right. Yeah. So the thing that you wrote was focusing on financial debt, financial fraud, which I suppose would be easier to detect than, than uh, the other types that I mentioned. But I just wonder if you could use the, if the same, the same uh, general approach might apply. Yes. I mean, at the, at the end, very underneath the algorithms, they do the same because they are looking for patterns that, they know that in the past uh, were fraudulent. Um, same case for an irony. If you need to, to teach an algorithm to detect an irony, you need to feed this algorithm with examples of irony. Um, right. So it's the same with fraud detection and with all, all, the, all the parameters uh, that you can't imagine how it's taking that decision. But the reality is that you need to feed those algorithms with with examples that you already know, so this yeah. could be a the most difficult part right. because so, probably you don't know it. Yeah, that, that's a, yeah. So for AI to be useful, it, you have to seek an answer that exists. AI cannot necessarily. I mean, it creates things that are new, but it's always based on something that already exists, right? So yeah. that that that's always the question, I think. It's, it, with code, especially, that's a question. Uh, or, or an observation that I, I see a lot is that, yeah, it's great for, you know, answering questions for simple problems that already have a lot of solutions. But if you're looking for something new, you no. know, it's, it's maybe not going to, you know, fit the bill. So, so I think we've, we've covered this from a lot of angles, AI generative, AI conversational, AI, all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think as usual, we've probably left a lot of questions unanswered. And I think uh, we're gonna we're going to want to revisit this in the future. But in the meantime, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Ezekiel, for joining us to talk through some of these ideas that we had. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>